0: Now we've been going through the book of John. We covered uh, actually the last 24 hours of Jesus' life in great detail as the Apostle John through chapters 13 through 17 gave us an enormous insight into these last 24 hours of his life. And now last week we saw that he was before Pontius Pilate. He had been brought to the house of Caiaphas and uh, he's been beaten. He spent a night in the dungeon in Caiaphas' home. Um, uh, Pontius Pilate declared for him to be beaten washed his hands of it uh, um, he had the conversation with Jesus what is truth and uh, also said to Jesus said to him when he said are you the king of the Jews and uh, Jesus said is, is that your opinion or is it something that someone gave you and so we took a look at that and how we all have to deal with truth and what is truth and we went through the the applications of that but now as uh, Jesus has been ordered to be flogged, we have witnessed in these, this period of his life where he's been bleeding. A uh, number of things to take into consideration as we come to chapter 19. One in particular is that Jesus has been awake well over 24 hours. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying through the night while the apostles slept. He was there in the morning to greet the winding uh, fiery serpent of 600 people. Um, Roman soldiers coming down into Gethsemane to apprehend him. Um, I'm sure they, they struck him a few times. He was put in chains. They mocked him, and and he's bleeding. Uh, they've already hit him with a cat of nine tails, uh, 39 lashes. And as you know, the cat of nine tails, we described it. The, the flagellum is um, uh, nine strips of flat leather, soaked in water at the tip of each of the strips of leather. is a metal shard. And, and as painful as the whip is, when the leather smacks the back, that's not the excruciating pain. It's when the metal digs into the skin and then rips the flesh out. 39 of those he's endured. Uh, the beating he's endured. Uh, they, they left him, as as Isaiah said, uh, his visage, his face was so marred that he was unrecognizable uh, of any other man. So they, they've done a number on him. He's, he's bleeding. He's been bleeding. He's been without sleep. He's emotionally, physically probably exhausted. Now they've got him taking his cross up the Via Dolorosa. In other accounts of the gospel accounts, we see that he requires assistance to, to carry the cross up the hill. But uh, now he's, he's come, he's bearing his cross up the Via Dolorosa. While he's doing that, people are throwing things at him. He's probably being hit with stones. He's being spit upon. Everyone's yelling at him. The vengeance of evil is being unleashed on, on the Savior. And uh, he is, every step is excruciating, trying to get up to Golgotha. We're going to see in chapter 19, we're not going to pick up at the beginning, we're going to go midway in between, and we're going to take a look at his death. Uh, This is something I've covered a number of times on Easter Sundays, uh, also Good Fridays. Uh, It's a difficult passage for me to get through, I know it will be for all of us. Many of you have watched The Passion of the Christ. And in The Passion of the Christ, um, folks who aren't Christians that were movie critics just said it was two hours of beating a man to a pulp. And it really, you know, if, if you had no spiritual connection to it, it was two hours of just blood and beating, and it, it was graphic, and it deserved its R rating to, to every extent. Well, that's where we are. We're in a, in a time where he's, he's beaten, he's bleeding, and, uh, and he is in severe pain massive pain. And we're going to pick up and take a look at the passage and what God has to say to us this morning. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 17. Verse 17. And Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And by the way, you know that our church is called Calvary Chapel. Calvary is an English transliteration of Golgotha. It means the place of the skull. It's where Christ died. If you ever wondered why we're called Calvary, everybody spells it C-A-L-V-E-R-Y. It's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Uh, Calvary, Golgotha, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. Verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece and they said therefore among themselves let us not tear it but cast lots for it whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots by the way that's out of psalm 22 there are six major messianic prophecies in this reading alone Um, which is astronomically high as far as odds are concerned relating to a single person. I'm not going to go into detail about that, but suffice it to say, you're not rejecting the gospel based on evidence. You're rejecting it because you love the darkness more than the light. There is ample evidence to defend his messianic position and who he is. And these are the more sure word of prophecy, which speaks beyond the space-time continuum. It's fascinating. Verse 25 Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. She was the prostitute. She was actually the first to see the resurrected Christ. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, and by the way, that's John calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he's writing this. just thought I'd point that out. He said, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, in the Greek, in the English, it's three words, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, he died. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, meaning that it was Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. So both robbers had their legs broken. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And that's Exodus 12, Numbers 9, also Psalm 34. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That's Zechariah 12.10. All messianic prophecies. person writing this is John. He testifies that it is true. History testifies that it is true. And we will examine it this morning together. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. Lord, I pray that as we examine what is for Christians an odd thing to celebrate blood. I pray that you would show us why. Well, we know that Jesus suffered. We know that he was beaten. We know that he was crucified. We know that he died. But why? And so, Lord, today, I pray that you touch every heart with the power of this passage, which is living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword. Speak into every heart present, I pray, according to your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please be seated. Jesus is bleeding, and uh, we're going through a depiction of this bloody mess, from the beating of of the cat of nine tails, to the punishment of the fists of the soldiers, um, to the nails in his wrist, the nails, or the nail in his feet, the crown of thorns upon his skull. He's bleeding from the beard that they pulled out of his face, he's bleeding, and now this final injury that he sustains is a spear in the side. And fascinatingly, not just blood comes out, but blood and water, as John clearly depicts. This blood and water pours out. Jesus has been on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Fascinating that it is the day of Passover. There's a line around the temple, people waiting to bring their sacrificial Paschal lamb to the altar to be sacrificed. The sacrifices were held at 9 and three. And here Jesus has been on the cross since nine, having been crucified, and now dies at three o'clock. It's not by coincidence. Here we see messianic psalms being fulfilled as we've gone through uh, the listing of these. I listed to you the scriptural references in each of these messianic psalms that were written hundreds, if not thousands of years before this occurred. Even the form of crucifixion was prophesied that Jesus would be crucified 800 years before crucifixion had been invented. So I just want to share with all who are present today that Christianity hasn't been rejected because of a lack of evidence. It's been rejected because of a love for sin. We're in a fallen world. John wrote earlier in our studies of the book of John that the lightness, light came into the world, but the world loved darkness more than light. It's, it's not that we, we, we can avoid Christianity because of its lack of evidence. We avoid Christianity because of its abundance of light. We love, and, and the word that, that John uses for love, sin, love, darkness, is agape. Agape is selfless. We give ourselves selflessly to darkness, which means we, we allow our lives to be absolutely ruined by darkness. And, and it, we come to a place where we can't say no. We live in a world where, where death is abundant. We, we live in a culture of death. We celebrate death. We just did yesterday in some respects. And and light has come into the world, but the world loved darkness more than light. And so when light is coming to testify and to bear witness of the truth, as John would say in in his writings here in John 19, what I'm telling you is true. I testify to it. And he's testifying to the fact that these this is a prophetic fulfillment of, of the Messianic Scriptures. Messianic Scriptures, Messianic Psalms. Jesus is the Messiah. This is proof of it. Speaking again, as I said, beyond the space-time continuum. And we're going through uh, the, the, the bloodied aspect of the final hours of Jesus' life until he breathes his last. And the final word that he would, he would utter from the cross was to tell us die, it is finished. He did say, I thirst, because he had gone without sleep for well, well over 24 hours. We're now into probably 30 hours of no sleep. He has been beaten so badly that he is absolutely completely dehydrated. He's been given no sustenance. His tongue is so swollen that he can't speak. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you're so thirsty that your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth. Imagine having gone without any sustenance, any water, nothing to satiate the the intense thirst. His body is in trauma state. His tongue is swollen. Other portions of his body are swollen. His face is swollen beyond recognition. And this tongue is, is just stuck to the roof of his mouth. He's able to utter these words, and the guards that are maintaining uh, order around the base of the crosses with all the criminals that have been um, punished or being punished, they're familiar with the utterances of dying men. And there seems to be some sympathy within these callous guards to listen for the dying moans of the idea of I thirst. And, and so they provide them just so they can shut them up with this hyssop that they would dip into this, this sour vinegar, supposed wine, and he touches it just to the mouth of Jesus where he can get enough into his mouth to loosen the swelling of his tongue upon the roof of his mouth. Able to loosen it, he utters that word, to tetelestai, and then he breathes his last and gives up his spirit. This is where we find ourselves. Prior to his death, we find that Jesus is assigning responsibility for his earthly mother and saying to John, take care of her. And John says, you got it, boss. I've been to the place where John took Mary in Ephesus and cared for her, the purported house, the last house of Mary. It's a fascinating, beautiful place. John did a good job taking care of her. In the process of this, we see that the authority that that Pontius Pilate thought he had, God still allowed, that he would declare that the sign remains, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, even though the Jews wanted something else written. We find that they cast lots for his clothing, which was prophetic in its in its execution. And through this, Jesus knowing all these things and, and taking care of his mother, we find that these last two statements, I thirst and it is finished, bring us to what I consider to be The most telling part of the crucifixion he's bloodied no doubt and and i look at this and i think to myself the blood it's everywhere not only is he bloodied but you can imagine you can imagine the temple right now it's passover there's blood pouring out all over the place Blood is pouring out from lambs that have been slaughtered and carried from thousands of miles away as everyone is descending upon Jerusalem for the Passover and the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Blood is being shed through these animals, and outside the gate, the blood of the Savior, the Lamb of God, is being poured out as well. I found myself early on in my Christian walk struggling, especially as I attended a church that sang hymns. and I remember singing the hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow and and as i I heard these things and the that there is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the lamb, that sounds really catchy doesn 't it we 're singing about blood we 're singing about blood and and i I find myself in good company and also bad company that that there were two famous men of old that struggled over the Christian's view of of this blood. They called it a bloody religion. One was Voltaire, who was not a believer, and the other was President John Adams, who was a believer. They both declared Christianity to be a bloody religion with all of its wars and its frequent mention of blood and the bloody death of its founder, Jesus Christ. They said it is is a religion of blood. Even the hymn that we sing often, and, and you think of the words, What can wash away my sin? nothing but the blood of jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of jesus oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount i know nothing but the blood of jesus i was on the couch last night i have a cut on the back of my neck and i was sitting there my daughter came in she saw me doing this and and she said, Let me take. And she runs in. She just walked through the door and she's got this nurse attitude and she goes and gets the alcohol and a little bandage. She puts it on. And she goes, Oh, she got some on the couch. Well, we just reupholstered the couch and she's trying to get it clean before Michelle comes back in the room. And I didn't want Michelle to know, but she's here and now we're in trouble. <laughs> but isn't it fascinating how blood just, it's hard to get out? Pilate wanting to wash his hands of the blood of Christ. And, and, and blood has this, this presence about it that it represents. Trauma. It represents danger. It, it, it represents fright and concern. You walk upon a scene where there's blood, you know something traumatic has occurred, something tragic has occurred. Some scenes I've witnessed, it, it's amazing how much a human being can bleed. I remember my friend Bob Gainsley who built this this pulpit. He, he, he died of cancer and his organs shut down and the doctor just said he bled out. He just bled out. Blood is awful. And yet we celebrate it. We celebrate this blood. The scriptures say, In Hebrews 9, Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us all. He was the Passover lamb. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live to righteousness. The author of Hebrews in chapter two writes, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. I I think of that movie, The Passion of the Christ and it's two hours of a man being beaten and bloodied. He's bleeding, and he's suffering, and then he dies. And when we read John 19, it appears that we're observing the passion of the Christ, a man bleeding, suffering, and dying. And we think, well, that's an awful chapter. Is the story we've read just about a man being beaten, bloodied, and dying? No. John 19 Is a story of why he suffered. It's a story of why he bled. It's a story of why he died. The Bible clearly teaches, and as scholars of old would declare, if you cut the Bible, it bleeds on every page. It's a book of blood. The Bible clearly teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter 1 says, in Christ we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Revelation 1 says that Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter writes, It is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus has been bleeding a lot, and now he bleeds out in chapter 19. The most profound wound to me as Jesus is being wounded again and again and again and again and again. And all of them had been planned, all of them had been orchestrated. Every wound, every lash, even the beard being pulled out of his face was prophesied. Wound after wound. And then finally came the last wound the spear in the side. He pierced his side, the Roman soldier did. And fascinatingly enough, at that moment, it wasn't just blood that poured out. It was water too, blood and water. At three o'clock in the afternoon, blood and water. When we take our trip to Israel in June, we're gonna go through the Kidron Valley where the Kidron Spring runs through. I've been told on a number of trips about the Kidron Spring and the, excuse me, the Kidron uh. Creek that runs through. You see, because of the massive amounts of blood that the temple had to endure through these periods of sacrifice, it got in the utensils, it got on the floors, it got on all the pots and the pans, it was, blood was everywhere. And they devised a system of pumps where the water would come from underneath the temple and it would flow across all the, the granite and the marble, and, and they would wash all of the instruments with the water pumped from beneath the temple, and then it would go to the trenches on the side and then flow out into the Kidron Valley through these pipes. And so at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as the pumps are washing the blood from the sacrifice of the Passover, and the blood and the water are mixing and pouring out, there in the Kidron Valley within sight of Golgotha, flowing into the Kidron, and and it's still red to this day, and the soil is used by farmers because it's rich in nutrients to grow things. There, as the pipes are pumping out the blood and the water, the spear goes into the side of Jesus, and blood and water pour out. Fascinating picture that you can imagine there in Golgotha, and watching the same occur within the temple, and even Jesus being crucified outside the temple was a declaration of another Messianic prophecy. I find the wound in Jesus' side the most profound because it touches me the deepest. I'm not a physician and I mispronounce these words and Dr. Linda could probably assist me in this. But There's a condition known as cardiac tamponade. It happens when a person undergoes enough stress in their life that their heart literally bursts from strain. When this happens, the blood from the heart mixes with the fluid in the sac that surrounds the heart, known as the pericardium. That fluid looks a lot like water. So if you were to pierce the sac after a person died of cardiac tamponade, what you'd see come out would be blood and water. The Bible declares that Jesus was on the cross and all the sins of mankind were brought to bear on his body. All in that one place. In that one time, in that one place, all that mess bearing down upon his body. The reality is he died of a broken heart. I think about the heartache in the room right now, and there's plenty of it. There are broken relationships, hearts are broken, there's addictions, a broken life, meaningless, no hope, no direction, there's sickness. Diagnosis of cancer, terminal illness, incurable disease, death of a loved one. There are broken hearts all through this room. And as a parent, I think I can say children are really good at breaking your heart. I know because I was a child. My dad's not long for this world. My mom's past. I think about how kids have the ability to break their parents' heart. I remember I wasn't a Christian. I'd given up on school. I didn't want to be at Tulane anymore. So I left, leaving my dad in enormous debt, came back to California, San Diego, I was old enough to know better, but stupid enough not to. And I was going to try to manipulate my parents to live the life I wanted without responsibility. You see, life is hard, and it requires sacrifice and responsibility. It requires discipline. And that can only be achieved when you yield to the Lord. You ask for His help. A life lived by your own terms apart from God The only way you survive is at the heartbreak of those who love you because you leech upon them, you drain them, you lie to them, I know. As I came home, my dad had had enough of his wayward son. My dad wasn't a believer, but he was a wise man. He'd done the best to provide with what he knew and served his country the best he knew how. He wasn't a perfect man. He was a man with many mistakes and failures, as all of us have. I don't judge him. I love him. I'm going to miss him. And I came home, and I told my dad I wanted to go surfing, and I was going to go to a community college, and I was going to hang out with my girlfriend, and I was planning on living in his house and eat his food. My dad said, Nobody lives in this house who isn't enrolled full-time in college. I said, all right, I can do that. I was thinking of just taking two or three units, you know, but I could do the full-time thing and escape by with C's. And I went to go get my car, and my car was gone. I said, Dad, where's my car? He said, I sold it. I said, you sold my car? Yeah. You ran up a debt. I used that money to pay for what you owe me. And that was my car. He said, no, it was my car. And I sold my car. I said, Well, how am I going to get to community college? I can't, I can't get to San Diego Mesa and play water polo without a car. He said, You're going to go to San Diego City and take the bus. I said, I I'm, I'm not going to San Diego City College. That's in, that's in the inner city. That place is dilapidated. That is just inundated with gangs and, and prostitutes and drug addicts. He says, You're, you're going to take the bus. I said, if you end up making me take that bus, you're you're going to have blood on your hands. I'm going to die. And sure enough, the bus dropped you off here and you had to walk, I think it was eight blocks to the school, and it was through all the prostitutes, all the drug dealers. The, the gas lamp quarter hadn't been completed yet. I mean, San Diego was, was a cesspool. And I remember walking by every one of them and just, just keeping my head down, just keep walking, keep walking. And, and I, I was exposed to stuff I'd never seen as a you know kid growing up in Coronado. I'd come home every day and I'd lay into him, you're going to kill me, I'm going to be dead, it's going to be your fault. And I could just see my dad, it was cringing over it, but he kept making me take that bus. I couldn't understand. It's cruel. I made it through that semester. I got a job. I carried the units. I did anything I could to get out of that school. And then finally I got a car, bought one with my own money, paid my own insurance, drove myself to San Diego Mesa, got my NC2A eligibility back, got a scholarship to Fresno State, ended up realizing an education's valuable, came to Christ and everything changed. And then we fast forward, and my dad is in a home with Alzheimer's, and my mom's dying of cancer. And I went to the hospital room after surgery, and my dad wasn't talking anymore, and he's real close to being with the Lord, as I said. And, and my mom, having one of those conversations with me, said, Rob, I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay, Mom. And, and she would be dead in three days. And she said, Rob, you know when you used to really ride your dad about having to take the bus, and you told him about the prostitutes and the drug dealers? I said, yeah, it was awful. She said, do you know that your dad followed that bus for months to make sure you were okay? It broke his heart. We have a really uncanny ability to break hearts, don't we? Hearts of each other, but more importantly, the heart of the Lord. And every one of those miseries was leveled on him At that spot, at that time, he's gone over 30 hours without sleep. He's bleeding from everywhere. He's overwhelmed. And all the heartache and the heartbreak falls upon him. And he carries your sin and he carries my sin. He carries the culture of death of our world. He carries all of the lies. He carries the deceit. He carries the addictions. He carries the divorce. He carries the molestations. He carries it all. And it falls on him right there. And the wound proved that his heart was broken. And I had something to do with it. He died of a broken heart. And the blood and the water poured out. And John says, it's true. It had to happen that way. These things were decided centuries before they'd been prophesied. Why had they been prophesied? Why had they been planned this way? Why would he die of a broken heart? Because the Bible teaches for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. That's why. He doesn't want us to die. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And there's a debt nobody in this room can pay. Because everybody's a sinner. And if you say you aren't, that's pride and you are. Because that's a sin. And when you cut the Bible and it bleeds from every page... And the Old Testament declares the sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep. God taught his people that something had to die in place of our sin. Not just something, someone. And Jesus died on the Passover, not on the Day of Atonement. He died on Passover. It was was this imagery that he wanted to instill and just sear into the mind of every human being. Passover. I'm dying on Passover. Passover. And what was that imagery? It occurred 3,500 years earlier. Exodus chapter 12. The Pharaoh wouldn't let the the Hebrews go. God had done a series of plagues, nine of them to be exact, and and he he was stubborn. He says, who is God that I should obey him? And finally, God said to Moses, I'll introduce myself to him. And so he does those nine plagues, but he says, I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh. And on Egypt, he instructed Israel to prepare a special meal, a Passover meal. You can read all about it in Exodus. But the main course of that meal would be a lamb. A lamb without blemish. A lamb with no broken bones. That's why John said this is true. And the blood of the lamb was to be painted on the doorpost and the lentils of their homes. And I've gone through this many a time, that the blood would be on the top, it'd be on the sides of the door, and it would be in the basin. And those are all the points of the cross where Jesus bled. The nails in his hand, the nail in his feet, and the crown of thorns on his head. 3,500 years before. It's imagery. It's Passover. It's the lamb of God, the sinless lamb of God. Bleeding out with a broken heart for mankind. God said in Exodus 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, and I am the Lord, and the blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. When God would see the blood of the lamb on that home, the angel of death would pass over those homes. And that's where you get the title Passover. The blood of the lamb was the only thing God saw. It was the only thing he was looking for. It was the only thing that would stave off his judgment. And death wouldn't visit that home if the blood of the lamb covered that home the only hope for your home is the blood of the lamb. In a world of death and a culture of death, in a world of broken hearts and addiction and sickness and misery, there will be judgment for what we've done. And everybody is a heartbreaker. But the only way to stave off that judgment is to have Christ's blood cover you so that God's judgment will pass over you. John the Baptist, as we studied earlier in John, when he baptized Jesus, do you remember his words? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why John 19 was written. Not to depict a brutal beating of a man, but why this must occur. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was saying that Jesus had come to be our Passover Lamb. Jesus shed his blood specifically to cover our sins. Bible says that he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. The blood covers your failures. The blood covers your weakness. The blood covers your addiction. The blood covers your stupidity. First John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In our time remaining, I want to simply share with you that though blood is grotesque and it speaks of trauma and trial, Christians in every generation celebrate it. And here's why. We know the benefit of it i want to list to you five things from the bible that'll help us see the blood of jesus in such a special place that we too would celebrate it by the blood of jesus we gain access to god in worship and prayer hebrews 10:19 says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus ephesians 2 says now in christ jesus you who once were afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ the other blessing we receive that we celebrate the blood is this the forgiveness of sins Ephesians 1:7 says in Christ we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace Matthew 26:28 when Jesus was having the Passover meal the Seder with his disciples And he had the elements like we do today. And I didn't plan this. This was God's doing. I didn't even know it's communion Sunday. I'm just telling the truth. I'm not the most organized human being on the face of the earth. But God knows what he's doing. (laughs) Stop laughing. (laughs) At that dinner, he turned to his disciples and he pointed to the cup. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. For many, for the forgiveness of sins. So the blood forgives our sin. The other thing it does for us is, and I am so grateful for this, it cleanses our conscience. I'm grateful for that. The author of Hebrews writes, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? I would say that's great news for those who are burdened by a sinful and corrupted past. And you know what a past is? Behind you. It can be as early as yesterday or an hour ago, but it's past forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. I have no doubt you have screwed up because you're just like me. And I have no doubt that you remember it, but it's time to forget it. That's a a life of, of going nowhere. And it's a life of regret and a life of misery and a life of death. And, and, and it's, it's a familiar life, and you want to return to it because at least you understand it. But it produces nothing but broken hearts and broken lives. And God says, forget that. Strive for what is ahead. I've cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Nothing will hinder you from serving me. The other aspect that that we have power and we celebrate blood is the, the fact that by Christ's blood, we're able to conquer the accuser of the brethren. That is a blessing. You've heard the voice. You are stupid. God doesn't love you. He couldn't forgive you for what you've done. How could you? Who do you think you are? Nobody has ever done anything like that. That is vile. You don't deserve to be on this earth. You don't deserve a family like that. You don't deserve to be happy. Now that may sound like your parents, but it's, it's Satan. Amen. And God has the ability to use a fallen voice, excuse me, Satan has the ability to use a fallen voice to exercise his condemnation upon God's children. But that is not the voice of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And the word in the Greek for nothing means nothing. Romans 12 says, and they have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they have love not their lives even unto death. As believers, I I can just tell you, I cannot stand on, on my own merit before Satan. He will chew me up and spit me out. The only thing good in Rob McCoy is Jesus Christ and his righteousness put on my account. That's the only way I can stand in front of his accusations. The Bible says when you're on your way to the court of law, agree with your adversary, the devil. So when the devil's saying, Rob, you did this, this, and this, and I go, you know, you're right, I did. And you're a liar, you're right, I am. And you're this, yes. And you're this, yes. I've done all of that. But if I'm not mistaken, we're getting to the court of law, and my advocate, my attorney, will deal with you, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus will say to the judge, his father, by the way... Yes, everything that you've stated is listed and the dates that you, devil, have listed are all there. But Father, if you'll notice, when you look at the entries, you can't read them because they're covered by my blood. There is no accusation, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. There's now therefore no, no, word in Greek for no, no. Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon spoke these words they comforted me, I pray they do the same for you. He says, I know what the devil will say to you. He'll say to you, you are a sinner. Tell him you know you are, but that for all that you but for all that you're justified. You know what justified means? Just as if I'd never sinned. Did you get that? Just as if I'd never sinned, all tied together, justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what the blood does. He will tell you of the greatness of your sin, and you tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will tell you of all your mishaps and your backslidings and of your offenses and of your wanderings. You tell him and tell your own conscience that you know all that, but that Jesus came to save sinners, and that although your sin may be great, Christ is greater, and he's able to put it all away and has. And then the final gift from the blood is that God has come, and listen, to rescue you and me out of a sinful way of life. He loves us, but he loves us so much he doesn't want us to stay this way. First Peter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were ransomed from our futile ways. It's, a, it's another benefit that Christians have through the blood of Christ. We've been ransomed from our futile ways. We, don't, we, we never used to be able to say no, but now we can. We have the ability through Christ to say no. We have to understand who we are in Christ. We have to understand the efficacy and the power of the blood and cling to it and celebrate it and rejoice about it and claim it and use it. This isn't ceremony. This isn't stupidity. This isn't this isn't repetitive, dumb actions. This is a sacrament. It is a sacrament of Christ. And we're rescued from a life devoid of meaning. You don't know where you're going or why you're here and you are empty beyond measure. And God says, I've come that you might have life and I'm going to bring you into a relationship with God and my blood will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And I'm going to give you the ability to live with purpose and meaning and that you're going to take this same joy to a world that is just absolutely imprisoned to that misery You're not going to be captured by it anymore. The blood of Jesus gives Christians salvation of their souls, forgiveness of their sins, access to God, victory over the enemy, and the power to live life with a clear conscience and a purpose. Why wouldn't you want that? I got to tell you, you may be young and still stupid, I'm old and a little stupid. But I've been there, I've done that, and I got the t shirt. You think there's an answer out there other than Jesus? I'm going to tell you you're wasting your time, you are breaking everybody's heart. And that spear in the side is the heart that breaks the most. God's not going to give up on you. But I got to tell you as a parent, you come to a place where you watch a child come to a place where they think they're an adult and they make stupid decisions. And they want to be the captain of their ship. And you sit back with a child that you were up with all night who was sick, a child you walked for the first time, a child you fed, changed, cared for, loved on. And you just stand back while your heart breaks. But I want you to know, as painful as that may be for a parent, it pales in comparison to the God who fashioned them and loves them. And poured out every drop of blood to redeem them. Because they think that there's something out there just around the corner. And you know there isn't, there's nothing but Jesus. All the evidence points to Christ. All the prophecies declare his blood is efficacious. Everything tells you why he died, why he bled, why he suffered. You're without excuse, but you reject it, not because of the absence of evidence. There's an abundance of it. You reject it because you love sin, and it's killing you. Repent. The blood comes to cleanse you and to set you right. And it doesn't matter if that misery happened five minutes ago. God will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will cleanse your conscience. He will give you purpose. He will redeem, restore, and reinvigorate a life worth living because you are his child and he loves you. That is what communion is. And I close with this last thought. For those that say you don't go deep enough into the text, <laughs> I told you that word in the Greek is to die Those three words in the English we say it is finished. The Greek word is to die It's what they would put upon a business that finished paying their last payment. To the last payment on the car. To die when you go to the courthouse and you pay that penalty and that fine, they say to tell it is finished it's behind you it's covered it's paid in full and i don't care what mess you brought in here or what debt you have his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth and with sour wine he loosened his tongue so that he could utter the word that would reverberate through all of history and echo in your ears, and pierce your heart. As you pile up this debt and you break hearts all over the world, as you pile up this misery and you engage in the darkness and the misery of this death culture, he speaks from Calvary before the last drop of blood pours out of his body and there's, very, there's nothing left. He utters with every fiber of his being that one word, and he wanted you to hear it. And he said it to paid in full. It's covered by my blood. That's why we celebrate. That's why we take communion. It's not an empty ritual who we are. We're children of God. And all of our debt has been paid in full. Amen?